You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. JBS discloses that it paid our evil roughly $11 million in ransom. Our evil not only had a good haul, but the gang made a few points about its brand, too. Colonial Pipeline explains and defends its decision to pay ransom. The U.S. Congress has a third-party problem that constituents may or may not notice. Dan Prince from Lancaster University on the science of cybersecurity. Our guest is Chris McConkie from PwC on their Cyber Threats 2020 report on the global threat landscape. And the FBI's recovery of some of the ransom Colonial Pipeline paid to the dark side was good, but it doesn't necessarily represent a new normal. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Elliot Peltzman, filling in for Dave Bittner, with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, June 10th, 2021. The Wall Street Journal reported in an exclusive last night that JBS paid its R-Evil attackers $11 million in Bitcoin to restore the systems and data affected by the gang's ransomware attack. That makes the $4.4 million Colonial Pipeline paid look like chump change, especially now that the FBI has recovered $2.3 million of the pipeline operator's payment. Andre Nogueira, chief executive of Brazilian meat company's U.S. division, described his decision to pay. He told the journal, It was very painful to pay the criminals, but we did the right thing for our customers. The payment was made after most of JBS's plants had returned to operation. The company says it had all of its data backed up, and that as far as it could tell, no customer, supplier, or employee data had been compromised. So why pay, especially when recovery seemed to be well-organized and making good progress? Nogueira said it represented a kind of insurance. The company's IT experts couldn't guarantee that our evil couldn't find its way back in. Nogueira said, quote, We didn't think we could take this type of risk that something could go wrong in our recovery process. It was insurance to protect our customers. End quote. Thus, payment appears to have been a way of hedging against the possibility of reattack. It's worth noting that JBS used an outside consultant to negotiate with the extortionists. Payment was apparently one of the options on the table from the outset. 
For all of its high-minded posturing about its operations being as proportionate and discriminating as one could wish of any well-behaved privateer, or socially conscious hood straight out of Sherwood Forest, our evil wasn't shy about attacking a company headquartered in Brazil when it hit JBS with ransomware. We heard from Zero Fox on the matter, and they think the evidence confirms what they've thought, more or less, all along. Quote, Our evil did not conduct much vetting of JBS as a target, relying simply on the fact that the parent company was headquartered in Brazil. It is a common practice in the cybercriminal underground to associate targets with the geographic location, industry types, and revenue numbers listed on their open-source business profiles. End quote. A side benefit for Our Evil's branding was that the attack seemed to be motivated by simple greed, a point Our Evil has taken some pains to drive home in its communiques. They're crooks, not spies, and they'd like you to appreciate the distinction. So JBS was a target of opportunity. It was available because it was in Brazil, a country not on the Kremlin's do-not-touch list. All of this is good for their bad business. As Zero Fox observed, our evil also gets to show that they're not afraid of Uncle Sam, and that's equally good for attracting new affiliates as it is for frightening prospective customers, as they call their victims. Zero Fox says, quote, our evil has previously used public-facing interviews to amplify their mystique and to attract more affiliate talent to their team. They want to build their brand, but also stay in business. End quote. Colonial Pipeline CEO defended paying ransom. It was a tough crowd, but he stuck to his point. Bloomberg Quint reports on the reception Colonial Pipeline CEO, Joseph Blount Jr., received from Congress during his testimony. It was chilly. The company's failure to have adopted a stronger security posture was criticized, as was its decision to pay ransom, the FBI's recovery of much of the money notwithstanding. Two things are noteworthy. First, the heat Colonial took from its congressional inquisitors renders implausible the speculation that the company paid the dark side's ransom in cooperation with the FBI the better to help the Bureau cripple the dark side's infrastructure. Colonial Pipeline CEO Joseph Blount took responsibility for the decision, which he presented to both the House and Senate, as the result of a tough cost-benefit calculation. Effectively, he had no choice, he said, in view of the severe consequences of protracted disruption of fuel delivery. Blount said, quote, I know how critical our pipeline is to the country, and I put the interests of the country first. I made the decision to pay, and I made the decision to keep the information about the payment as confidential as possible. It was the hardest decision I've made in my 39 years in the energy industry. End quote. When asked how much worse things could have become had Colonial not paid the ransom, Blount answered, That's an unknown we probably don't want to know and it may be an unknown we probably don't want to play out in a public forum. The second interesting thing about the testimony is the extent to which congressional attitudes about paying ransom have hardened, and how willing members of both houses are to criticize the private sector for lax security. It's only fair to mention, after the high dudgeon on display around Capitol Hill this week, that Congress itself has also had some cybersecurity issues. The Hill reports that I Constituent, 
a vendor that provides constituent management services, the elected officials equivalent of CRM, to some 60 offices of both parties, was hit by ransomware, leaving members of Congress unable to contact their constituents for several weeks. Even Solon's grapple with third-party risk. Good thing constituent service isn't really critical infrastructure. And finally, the FBI's recovery of about $2.3 million of the approximately $4.2 million Colonial Pipeline paid the dark side is encouraging and a good thing. But as an email from Data Barracks, the UK-based business continuity and IT recovery shop, warned us this morning, you'd be unwise to assume that the feds or anyone else can be relied upon to do the same for you should you become an unwilling customer of a ransomware gang. For one thing, whatever the FBI did to recover the money, and it probably had to do with their ability to obtain a private key for the wallets whose contents the Bureau retrieved, you can't count on that being possible every time. For one thing, the crooks also learn from the school of hard knocks and are less likely to repeat whatever mistakes made the FBI's recovery operation possible. Data Barracks Managing Director Peter Grocut said, quote, These innovations by authorities are still new, so it takes a while for them to become properly established. There's also no guarantee the highest echelons of law enforcement will come to your aid if ransomware strikes, so it's dangerous to rely on it as a way out. End quote. It's better to prepare to defend yourself. We heard as much yesterday from FBI Special Agent Doug Doman of the Bureau's Boston Field Office during a Cato Networks webinar. You want to let the local FBI know when you've been attacked, but remember that they're not an incident response team. Incident response is fundamentally the affected organization's responsibility. And while the FBI will go after the bad guys, you should be prepared to do your own remediation and local on-site investigation. So be prepared. Scout. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Six Sense. 
Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. The team at PwC recently published their Cyber Threats 2020 Year in Retrospect annual report. Chris McConkie leads PwC's cyber threat operations practice, and he joins us to share their findings. Well, look, it's a really interesting thing for us to do every year because we have a whole bunch of different services that basically put us in direct contact with some of the, the threat activity that's happening. So we do a lot of incident response work uh, around the world every year, several hundred cases in about 40 different countries. We have some uh, managed security services, and we also have a, a full-time threat research team that provides threat intelligence services to clients. And so the year in retrospect report is really um, the this thing that we try to do every probably February, March time consolidating everything that we see across all of those different services and trying to link that together with the sort of big picture rationale for why is it happening, who's behind it, what do we think is going to happen next, um, and try to distill that down in a way that's actually something that we can we can publish and that's easy, easily digestible um, by, uh, by clients and, and other people that want to read stuff like that. You know, based on the information that you've gathered in this report, what's your outlook for the coming year? Where do you suppose we stand? Oh, I, I get a, re- a really hard one to uh, to pin down, just given how much stuff's happening at the minute. Uh, mm. I know we saw a lot of stuff in 2020, but 2021 already looks like it's shaping up to be a year full of zero days. Um, so having had a year where there's a lot of really interesting threat activity that hasn't involved any exploits, we're back to seeing a load of zero days in VPN uh, solutions, in firewalls, in email uh, servers, and things like that that can be exploited on a mass scale. Um, and actually, even the Exchange one recently is a really good example where that was privately held by a bunch of threat groups before it became publicly known. And as soon as it became publicly known, then you had the whole world and their dog piggybacking on it. Um, So it doesn't really take long for people to look at what's being patched, pivot that round and actually turn it into a usable exploit. And for internet facing systems, that basically means you've got everybody trying to scan the whole internet um, to find vulnerable systems. So I think we will start seeing more and more of that stuff um, happening. And obviously the criminals getting in on the ransomware game is going to continue. The supply chain side of things, I think we will see more of. Um, obviously, there's been some really sophisticated espionage stuff in that space, but we've seen previous instances of financially motivated groups doing the same thing as well with the likes of Fin7 and Fin9 targeting supply chains before. Um, so again, we might see more of that. Um, and on the software supply chain side of things, 
I think we may see more of that as well. I don't know whether we'll see it on the same level of, of profile as the likes of solar winds. Um, but for example, at the minute, there's one of the Chinese espionage actors that's inside a Russian software organization that's used by about 20% of, of Russian companies. Um, so obviously from an espionage perspective rather than anything destructive. But again, that sort of stuff is happening, I think, more and more frequently. So um, from a, a threat perspective, I think we'll probably see a bit more of the same. Um, from a, a defender's perspective, I, mean, I guess one thing that was really interesting to see in 2020 was just the level of both cooperation and willingness from both government and private sector to start kind of naming and shaming some of the groups behind this. Um, so I think that sort of lean forward posture in terms of being able to get some of the stuff in the public domain, follow it up with sanctions, those sorts of things is actually going to be really helpful in future as well. That's Chris McConkie from PwC. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Daniel Prince. He's a senior lecturer in cybersecurity at Lancaster University, Daniel, great to have you back. Um, we want to touch today on the science of cybersecurity. What do you have to share with us? Well, as you'd expect, being an academic in an academic institution, in a science and technology faculty, uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite passionate about the scientific discipline um, and also exploring its, its role within cybersecurity, which is uh, obviously my other research area. Um, and one of the challenges that I see is actually the application of the scientific disciplines to uh, many of the cybersecurity challenges that we see today. A lot of cybersecurity has almost grown up um, in an ad hoc or um, organic fashion around the problems and trying to solve the immediate problem, firefighting. And I think there's a, there's a lot to be learned from the application of scientific methodology to practices like penetration testing and obviously we see a lot of scientific rigor in in terms of practices around uh, digital forensics but there are some areas that i think we can really look at in terms of applying un and understanding the different research methods that we have available from computer science and other disciplines and apply to some of the the, the cybersecurity challenges that, that we have today hmm. tell me about that what, what do you propose so if we take, for example, uh, penetration testing, which is uh, some, a module that I'm kind of working on revising at the moment, you know, so, so much of the ma material that we see at the moment is how do we break into uh, a system? How do we, you know, run a port scan? How do we get to, to, to the endpoint of, of whatever the penetration test is? And we, we've traditionally taken the approach of teaching the underlying technologies 
uh, and the, the sort of the, the main concepts of each of these types of attacks that they can be broadly applied. But if you think about what a penetration test is, it's a series of developing theories and then testing hypotheses. And you, you develop a theory about where there might be a weakness in the system, and you need to then test against that system. And what I think the science, sort of scientific rigor can bring to, to some of this is some formal methodologies, both in terms of quantitative and qualitative analysis of how do we apply these research methods to, to these particular problems so that we can learn and we can inform. And that's, I think, the important part is one of the key things around the scientific approach is that, that, that formal feedback part to help develop our knowledge base more broadly. So is this a matter of, of having a, a certain type of discipline overlaid onto the process? Yes, I think discipline is, is the right word. And I think it's also, again, tied with this idea of professionalism around, uh, around cybersecurity. And, and, and by that, I don't mean that people in the industry aren't, aren't and haven't been professional. I mean, it's about the, the increasing maturity within cybersecurity as a discipline. You know, when I go back 10, 10 11 years, cybersecurity wasn't really a concept except in science fiction. And now it is a big industry and i think the important part for for us is to say well if we are creating these professional bodies to to actually recognize professionalism and we see that happening in the uk and and in other countries how do we ensure that those professionals are applying appropriate techniques understanding the discipline uh, and what does that discipline mean we can't just take you know existing uh, research techniques and methods and just apply them directly. We have to understand how they need to be adapted for the for the particular research uh, and practical applications that we do within cybersecurity. And we have to situate it within that context. I mean, could we see things like like peer review come into play? Well, I mean, we, we do start, we are see, seeing that, you know, when we see thing, think about things like um, bug reports and, uh, and vulnerability reports, they, they do get peer-reviewed. Um, mm. And so we do have aspects of it. And, you know, we certainly see a lot of these kind of academic, if you like, disciplines being applied in the industry. And I, I think there's just more that we can do. And, you know, this was recognized back in, you know, five or six years ago in, in the UK, when uh, there was a national investment into a research institute uh, for the science of cybersecurity deliberately to start to really transform the practice of cybersecurity from best practice to, to, to kind of scientifically accurate and, and, and rigorous approaches. Um, and I think that's, that's the other important thing, you know, as, as professions increase in their professionality and, and their maturity, they, they go from a best practice to a discipline. And I think understanding how we can take the best of scientific disciplines and apply them to this emergent industry and a significant growth industry will add a significant amount of benefit for everybody involved. All right. Well, Daniel Prince, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. 
Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Elliot Peltzman, filling in for Dave, who will be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.